0: Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Jack, and this week, Inika, Kanisha, and I spoke with Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the conservative think tank American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on child welfare and foster care issues. For decades, Naomi's work has focused on understanding how to identify and attend to those who are most vulnerable and at risk, and identifying ways of how we can better support them. Today, that translates to focusing on the impact of remote schooling and the mental health crisis being experienced by adolescents, especially the most vulnerable, for whom things have gone from bad to worse as they've become more invisible. The data is sobering. Rates of suicide and suicidal ideation, substance abuse and overdosing have all gone dramatically up. We talked about the impact of school closings and how important it is to adjust to COVID as the new normal and not to be overly cautious. Naomi shared that a child is as likely to die from COVID as they are to die from playing Little League. She encouraged us to think of COVID like we think of the flu. 20,000 kids are hospitalized with it each year, and yet we survive. Naomi feels that the billions of dollars the federal government has poured into schools hasn't been well used, and that schools are trying to adhere to too many policies to both their and our detriment. Furthermore, she would get rid of quarantining as she thinks it's impossible to run institutions with it. We also talked about the foster care system. There are currently 440,000 kids in the system rampant with cases of abuse and neglect and what it would take to reform that system in meaningful ways. It was a super interesting conversation and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Thank you for listening. Hi everybody, I'm Jack. I'm a high school junior from Manhattan I've been with NextGen for just about a year now. I joined them last year when I took part in their civic action program. We developed a civic action project specifically centered around freedom of expression in New York City high schools. So we released a survey which gathered a lot of really interesting data about sort of where freedom of expression stands in New York City high school. Since then, I've joined the podcast team as evidenced by my presence here, but I've also become really, really passionate about mental health advocacy for youth specifically. Um, I think that's pertinent to our guests today. I actually started a student well being committee at my school and sort of have been running around to the administration, chatting with them about how to try and improve student mental health and trying to examine the role that COVID and virtual school has played in that but also to appreciate some of the bigger factors at play in causing sort of what we see as a student mental health crisis at my school but more broadly in our generation. So today I'm really really excited to hear Ms. Riley's perspective on that but also to sort of understand and engage in a little bit more of a detailed discussion about what causes poor student mental health and how maybe technology is to blame for that.
1: Hi, my name is Kenesha. I'm a high school junior from Queens, New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also a facilitator at Yvote. And today, there's two main things that I'm excited to discuss today. One, kind of building on what Jack was saying, is the teen mental health crisis and how it's evolved with the advent of remote learning. So I think like me personally, I've written so many editorials with the rest of my editorial board at school about, you know, the mental health of students over remote learning, what teachers can do to help, what the administration can do to help, as well as just larger DOE policies that seemed to hinder students over the 18 months that we had to go through essentially seeing everyone on just a screen. And I think that time period really did reveal not only problems that covid caused but the problems that were underlying our lives as students for the longest time and i think that's something really interesting mental health or you know welfare for children in a different age group in the younger demographic i think that's something personally i don't really know a lot about and i think something that's not really talked about enough even on our podcast i don't think we really discuss um, the intricacies of, of welfare, of just like child care for children at younger ages. And I think that's definitely something, uh, another inequity that the pandemic has revealed is you have so many essential workers that have to go into work. You have people working from home that are not equipped to take care of their children. And you also see, you know, the state is not equipped to help um, parents take care of their children as well. So I'm just kind of excited to discuss what changes you think need to be made to the system and the role that both the government and parents can play in it.
2: Hi, my name is Madeline and I'm a high school junior from Brooklyn, New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also a lead civic fellow at our civic forums here at NGP. and. I am definitely interested in the same things that Jack and Kanisha are interested in. But I think that I bring a little bit of a different perspective because I am so involved with younger kids, since I do have two little brothers who are elementary school age, and they both have very different experiences. In terms of one is like your typical gifted student and the other has more individualized needs in terms of learning disabilities and things like that. And so I think that it's really interesting that I've been able to be involved in their lives and notice some things about like things like child welfare that other people may not necessarily be so aware about. And the thing that I've experienced in terms of my own like civic activism journey is that Teens have some sort of ability to speak up for themselves. They have a great ability to do so. And adults obviously do it very well for themselves, but they also do it for teens and for younger youth. And so what I've been trying to think about is like how we can listen to what these children actually have to say for themselves, because they're, they're much more self-aware than we think that they are. I think it's interesting to just have a conversation with with a young little kid and ask them what they need and see how that aligns with what adults and what older people might think that they need for themselves. So I'm interested in having this conversation with you today.
3: Great. Well, uh, it's nice to meet all of you. I am Naomi Schaefer Riley. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. And for about the last 23 years or so, I've been a journalist. I've covered all sorts of issues from education to technology, family issues, um, philanthropy, but about um, Four years ago, I came to the American Enterprise Institute with the idea that I really wanted to focus on issues relating to child welfare. Um, So that includes questions about child maltreatment, kids who've been abused or neglected, um, kids who are in our foster care system, uh, questions about adoption, kind of what the nonprofit organizations that do some of this work look like, um, understanding how to better identify those kids who are most vulnerable and, and who are most at risk, and figuring out what we can Do to help those kids better. Um, So, obviously, like I said, I started this about four years ago, which was well before the pandemic. But uh, as I started kind of thinking about these issues more in the context of of COVID, I realized uh, just how much the kind of things that were already bad seemed to be getting much worse under COVID. And so, in particular, what we found was that, you know, kids who were, you know, who got to go to school, you know, often we would identify, teachers would identify identify doctors, identify social workers, um, law enforcement, people would be able to see those kids and see um, that they were being harmed or that they were not being, you know, receiving medical treatment or other things like that. Um, And when everybody went home and everything shut down, um, those kids became invisible, unfortunately. Um, And so what I've really been, you know, trying to sort of talk to people about over the last couple of years of COVID is how this isolation that kids have experienced has impacted kind of across the spectrum, you know, whether it's kids who are basically kind of fine in terms of their economic well-being, you know, finding that they are in kind of a severe mental health crisis. Our rates of suicide and suicidal ideation have gone up among adolescents during the pandemic, but really talking about those most vulnerable kids whose situations really worsened. Parents who already had issues with substance abuse, for instance, uh, those became much worse during the last year. Uh, We had 100,000 overdose deaths in this country uh, last year. And those are just, you know, frankly, the people who died. I mean, a lot of kids were left uh, without one parent or two, but even many of those whose parents survived, it turns out that they were not receiving the kind of attention and the kind of basic needs being met that we would hope that they would be. So those are the things that I have been writing a lot about. I think when people, when we first went remote, everyone kind of thought, oh, it's this wonderful thing that we have access to technology. And, you know, gee, if this pandemic could happen 20 years ago, what would we have done? But I think we realize realized that the technology in many ways is not all it's cracked up to be. And you know, this is not the way people and definitely not the way kids, I think, are meant to interact with each other.
0: I think what you mentioned about technology being a double-edged sort of promise in that, hey, we can continue schooling, but also schooling virtually is not great. I think one thing that's really interesting to me when you said that is I'm reminded of the introduction to your book Be the Parent Please which is sort of this this explanation about why like increased screen time is really detrimental to teen mental health. And I actually quite agree with sort of the the main thrust of of that argument, right? That excessive screen time is a really bad thing. And so I guess one of my questions about that is, and this is pertaining more to the the climate of like business and like culture, but specifically, more specifically, at least I'd be interested in educational institutions in that for the past 18 months coming on two years now, oh my God, of this COVID crisis, the thinking has been our goal is to stop the spread, right? That has been the priority. We're going to wear masks. We're going to shut down. We're going to contact trace. We're going to test. We're going to do, you know, we're going to quarantine. We'll do all this. But now in the news and sort of elsewhere, I think that there's a a change of thinking afoot. The approach has shifted from how can we not have COVID spread to how can we live with COVID? And what I'm interested in in understanding is do you think that educational institutions, from your experience, are they on the the beginning end of that trend? Or would you say they're on the end of that trend? And how prevalent would you say that trend is like generally? Do you think that we can expect in a couple months? I mean, obviously, we're not going to be back to normal, but that people will be more actively thinking about how can we live with COVID as opposed to this still sort of mindset that we've had from the beginning of the pandemic, which is how can we just, we can prevent people from getting COVID?
3: Sure. Well, I mean, I am also not an epidemiologist. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm not able to predict the future either. I will say the fact that so many people have gotten COVID recently, I think has just sort of driven home this reality for most people, which is we, our policy cannot be prevent the spread when 10 people that you know off the top of your head have had it in the last two weeks. I mean, it just... It's not a policy that makes sense. But frankly, in schools, I think it was never a policy that made sense because kids were among the least vulnerable. You know, they were never getting really sick. They were never passing it in schools. And, you know, when you said like, oh, you can't imagine us getting back to normal even in a couple of months, I want people to understand just how unique, you know, certain parts of this country are. I mean, I don't understand how we've just ignored the fact that Europe kept their schools open this whole time. I don't know how we've ignored the fact that lots of parts of this country have kept their schools open this whole time. Like to me, we We should not be living in this bubble where we assume that everybody is living in this weird way like we are. I mean, I have three kids. I live in Westchester. Um, so, you know, I, my kids experienced uh, some remote schooling, too. But, you know, I have one kid in private school and two kids in public schools. And even the way the public schools and the private schools did things were different. And it wasn't because, COVID could spread in public schools, but not in private schools. So I I just I, I would like us to start getting into the mentality that we can go back to normal and, um, and that lots of places already have gone back to normal. I think schools have frankly been on like the very tail end of this trend. And some of it certainly, um, I think has been a problem with the teachers unions. I think some of it um, has definitely been a problem with parents. I mean, you know, if if you sort of look around and sort of try to figure out who those voices are who are trying to keep kids remote now, I think you definitely hear it among certain uh, groups of teachers. But I think you also hear certain groups of parents who are still flipping out. And I think. You know, frankly, a lot of my fellow parents are unable to properly assess risk. You know, I just I looked up out of curiosity the other day, like the mortality numbers for kids in COVID. And frankly, it's the exact same number. You know, you're just as likely if you're a kid to die from COVID as you are to die playing little league. And so I just want people to kind of understand, like nobody is asking themselves, should my kid play Little League because they might die from getting hit by a baseball. Um, But everybody is sort of like, oh, what's going to happen to my kid in school? So um, I don't, I think that schools kind of need to get with this program more of learning to live with COVID and not just, you know, bringing back actual school, but all of the things that come with it, sports and plays and gatherings and social life outside of school I mean I think kids have just missed out on so much the last couple of years and it's it's heartbreaking
1: yeah um just like building on that at least at my school right it's like a school with over 3,000 people um, that are moving between classes for like four to five minutes between classes and crowded hallways. So like since the first day of school, since everything opened back up again, I was kind of thinking, yeah, no longer about, you know, preventing COVID from spreading at all. It's really about minimizing it. And trying to like make the best of the situation that we have at hand. Because like I can definitely say after spending most of high school online, in-person instruction has been like a lot better, a lot more enriching. And it's definitely something we should be striving towards. But I think like the biggest issue that we've seen in New York, especially among like underfunded districts, has been the fact that teachers are required to quarantine. And there's a lot of schools that are like understaffed and aren't equipped to deal with things like that. Especially, I think, I'm not entirely sure on the data, but I think it's very prevalent among like elementary and middle schools we're seeing a lot of teachers that are out, there's not even enough substitute teachers to cover classrooms. And it's quite a dire situation with COVID and with what the DOE quarantine policy looks like, you know, in comparison to CDC standards is already a little bit lacking. So I guess my question is, where do you think schools should begin to draw the line? Or what resources do you think schools really need in this, in these like really stressful times versus what's actually happening right now?
3: Sure. Well, I mean, obviously a lot of the schools are just, they're having to abide by policies. And and what you've seen, I think in the last couple of years is just how many layers of policymakers you have. Like you have, you know, the CDC, by the way, like their guidelines are not binding in any way. And if you ever looked at what the CDC guidance was like before COVID, you would laugh at like half of their recommendations. They're like, don't eat cookie batter and that sort of thing. Cause you might get food poisoning from raw eggs. Like, I mean, things that people don't pay attention to at all. And now they've they've sort of become like the holy grail that everybody needs to follow everything they're saying. But that being said, then states sort of took that as cue. Like, so then we had to wait for New York state to change their rules. And then you had to wait for the different counties to change their rules. And then you had to wait for the school board to change their rules. And so I think one thing that's become clear is just kind of how much bureaucracy is going on here. And so I think it was like, what, two weeks ago, at least, maybe more, that the CDC changed their guidelines about quarantining. Now, is, you know, is the governor of New York state saying, you know, she knows better than the CDC that she needs to consider all the evidence too? I mean, the way these decisions are being made, unfortunately, like sometimes leads me to just speculate that every petty bureaucrat like wants to have their say, and they're not really looking out for the best interests of the institutions that they're running. In terms of the resources, I mean, I guess we could talk about kind of the real world right now, or we could talk about like, what I ideally think COVID is going to look like. I think COVID is basically going to end up looking like the flu for a lot of people. I think we do underestimate. I mean, so in a typical year, about 20,000 kids are hospitalized, for the flu. A few years ago, in my daughter's school in sixth grade, something like two thirds of the grade was out with the flu and they were all growing up. They had high fevers. I mean, and the rule of the school was just until you've not had a fever for 24 hours, don't come back to school, which I think, you know, made sense for most people. And I think most parents were very respectful of the idea that they didn't want to infect the whole school with that. And the other thing about the flu, I mean, I know it's sort of considered like taboo to compare COVID to the flu, but, you know, the other thing is the flu kills a lot. Lot of elderly people every year too so we've also you know had this situation where you've had to consider the vulnerability of other populations that might come into contact with kids but in terms of your question about staffing the schools, a lot of the problem comes from the quarantining. And I think until we get rid of this idea that anyone who tests positive or anyone who sneezes is going to have to stay out of school, for in some places it's still 10 days, um, yes, you're going to have you know huge staff shortages. And when you add to that kind of the shortage in the labor supply generally, um, it's, it is impossible to run some of these institutions. Although... I saw there was a story out in California, I think, where a school said like they were short-staffed and they asked parents to come in and volunteer to do like cafeteria duty or supervision of resources, and they got like 400 volunteers within five minutes because every parent so desperately wants their kid to be in school that they are happy to donate their time in order to make that happen. I don't necessarily think that when we talk about resources, I mean, The federal government has poured just billions upon billions of dollars into schools for COVID relief and for kind of mitigation measures. And I am not at all convinced that that money has been spent wisely. And I think that's why you're seeing this crisis happen all over again.
1: Maybe switching gears a little bit to something else that you introduced when you were speaking about your background was something that really piqued my interest was like the work that you've done in foster care and in the various child care and welfare institutions in America. And there's a great magazine that's run by this organization in New York. It's called like Represent Magazine that publishes the voice of um, young people in the foster care system. And just by reading that, it's like really opened my eyes to something that I'm so disconnected from. And I feel like a lot of us are really disconnected from. Could you just speak a little bit about like the state of the foster care system and maybe how it's changed over the last few years.
3: Sure so the big number that most people talk about is that there are about 440 thousand kids in this country who are in foster care right now and usually uh, when people talk about maltreatment numbers that is kids who have been abused or neglected we get about three million reports in this country of kids who have been abused or neglected and about 800,000 of those are substantiated that means that we have some evidence that something really did happen in those homes which is not to say like the remaining two points two million kids were fine but we just don't have enough evidence to say one way or the other so you know what is happening to those kids and kind of who are they the majority of those kids are are younger children and a lot of the um, child abuse and neglect in this country is being driven unfortunately by substance abuse and so you can see why those numbers have increased uh, as the opioid epidemic has really hit a lot of parts of the country it's not just opioids I mean it's it's all different kinds of drugs it's also alcohol abuse, um, and then sometimes you have co-occurring mental illness uh, problems. And so some of those kids are sort of victims of what we would think of traditionally as child abuse. They've been beaten or subject to sexual abuse. The majority of those children are subject to what we call neglect. And a lot of people don't think that's necessarily a big deal because, you know, someone is not actually being beaten. But neglect is really very dangerous, especially for younger children. When you think about kind of how much one of you mentioned, I think that you had younger siblings, how much attention children particularly under the age of three need um, the need to be constantly fed and changed and burped and they need to be monitored if they have fevers. Um, and they, they really, you know, when they get into that stage where they can, what I, what I call the mobile, but totally irrational stage where you're just trying to prevent them from like running out the front door or touching a hot stove or jumping in the bathtub or whatever it is. Um, they need constant supervision. And unfortunately, a parent who is impaired will have a lot of difficulty with that. And we're seeing just a lot of those circumstances. I really think the drug crisis in this country is driving the child welfare crisis. And unfortunately, as we found, we don't have a solution to the drug crisis. Like it is really hard to treat addiction. And so it is really hard to combat some of the problems that we see in child welfare. You know, a lot of the the work that I do is kind of trying to figure out what are the best ways to help kids who are in the foster care system, whether they can be reunified with their families. If they can't be, you know, finding like good, permanent, loving, stable homes for them for the long-term is so important. And really just trying to be realistic about what, what the capabilities are of their families as well. It's a very difficult area. I think a lot of people, as you said, are disconnected from it. And I think it makes us uncomfortable sometimes to think about these kids and their situations, but we have this tremendous obligation. Not only does the government have a tremendous obligation, you know, to care and to make sure these kids are safe, but I think as private citizens, like we have an obligation to figure out ways that Um, we can help kids in foster care. For some people, that will mean being a foster parent, but for other people, it will mean supporting um, foster parents and supporting biological parents who are in need as well to make sure that kids remain safe.
2: Yeah, I want to extend on that a little bit more because I feel like often on this podcast, we talk about larger issues that don't really have solutions on an individual level. I was wondering like what call to action would would one even give to having resolved a situation as impactful on large scale as neglect of a parent? I feel like that's something that you can only address once it's too late and something has already become of that in the foster care system than something that can be addressed before it gets worse and that's, I guess, a societal change that needs to happen, but it seems like a rather hopeless situation.
3: So I think you know, a lot of people you know, are definitely engaged in prevention efforts uh, to try to figure out how we can help parents who are in vulnerable situations. And some of them we can treat their addiction problems or we can offer them help with parenting classes. I mean, when you get a, a 16-year-old who herself has been raised in foster care or has been raised by a teen mother herself, a lot of the basic information about how to parent children she does not have. And so what, you know, how can we? fulfill our obligations to just give people kind of basic understandings of what the proper role of a parent is. Um, But I think the work that I see that's so important and that does kind of give me hope because it is true, a lot of the writing I do and the research that I do can be quite depressing. I spend a lot of time traveling to different communities all over the country um, that have really been hit hard by the drug crisis and by child welfare problems. There are a lot of communities, I think, that have rallied around ideas uh, about how to fix the foster care system in particular. Some of those are are large faith-based institutions synagogues and mosques and churches. And what they've been able to do is I think they've been able to rethink the way uh, we recruit and train and support foster families. They give people, you know, the the state provides some basic information about what foster parents need to know, like, you know, how many fire extinguishers you need in your house and that sort of thing. But a lot of these institutions are providing more information about things like trauma-informed care, which is so important in handling kids um, who've been through such severe problems. But one of the most important things they do is support foster families. It's about half of foster parents quit within the first year. And so, you know, being able to sort of say to the people around them, like, who is willing to provide them with meals and who is willing to help them build furniture and who is willing to do respite care and take care of these kids like on a weekend if like the parents need to spend some time with each other. So I'm just very heartened by seeing communities rally around this cause and understand that in order to care for the child, we also need to care for the parents caring for the child, whether those are biological parents or foster parents or adoptive parents, frankly.
1: I was really struck when you talked about like not only the resources that need to be given to children in these situations, but the resources that actually need to be given to parents that are struggling with the same things, whether they're foster parents, or whether they're biological parents. My question for you is like, what changes do you think need to be made? whether it's within the foster care system, or government subsidized um, childcare in general, to make that process easier? Because I think kind of like I was saying in the intro, we've definitely seen the pandemic kind of just exacerbate of the disparities that were already present in various communities, whether those are like racial minorities or whether that's low income families that really struggle with childcare. So, I guess what can be done on whether it's like, you know, the municipal, state, or even federal level to make this process easier and just better for everyone involved?
3: Sure. Well, child welfare systems are generally run by the states. They get about half of their funding from the federal government, but but the federal government doesn't have a direct role in child welfare agencies. A lot of the policy changes that I think are important to make have less to do with kind of the resources, although child welfare is definitely under-resourced, like I would love to see caseworkers, I would love to see us recruiting a higher caliber of caseworkers. And one of the ways to do that would definitely be paying them more. I would also love to see many more resources in family court. I think that there the delays and the bureaucracy in family court are just are really overwhelming. And to say to a kid, you know, as young as two or three, like, come back for your next hearing in six months, I think is just completely crazy. I mean, to have them put their life on hold like that. I think a lot of the changes that I would make really have to do with making decisions about these kids and not just letting them languish in foster care indefinitely. It's really hard to have that level of uncertainty in your life. And as much as I think you know, we should give as many resources as we can to the biological parents, um, You know, there are timelines that are written into federal law. And the reason that those timelines are there is because we know it's so important for a child's development that they have kind of secure attachment to adults. Like, especially from the ages of zero to three, you know, a child needs to know, I mean, their whole brain development is about who is going to come when I cry. There are all these, there are these horrible stories about, you know, when people would go into like orphanages in Eastern Europe, back in, in the 90s, you'd walk into an orphanage and, There would be total silence. The children would have stopped crying. You know, even small babies would have stopped crying because they knew no one was coming and so i think we we just know so much about the brain development of these children and realize like whether it's a biological parent or a relat or another relative or a foster parent you know who has been well trained like we need to make sure that these kids have that kind of secure attachment that they need for proper development so that's kind of one of the things that i think about in terms of reforming the system is just making sure that that the child's best interest is really um, at the heart of what we need to do. Also just, you know, thought about other things. Like I I don't think that we're training the caseworkers who are going into this work properly. I don't, um, there was just actually a case last year, last week of a caseworker in, I think it was Illinois, who was killed on the job. She went and knocked on the door of a family who was being investigated to find out whether this child was in danger. And the man who answered the door stabbed her to death. A lot of this work, unfortunately, has to look a little bit like law enforcement because we're going into dangerous situations, we're asking difficult questions, and we're asking caseworkers to kind of look around and and gather evidence and figure out what is really happening to this child. It is really hard work. And I don't think that we have the the people that we necessarily need. And I don't think they're getting the training that they necessarily need to do this
2: work. I'm wondering since. Since our demographic of our podcast is relatively youth our age, what would you say if you could to youth our age who are interested in helping out in this issue, but don't know where to start or feel like they themselves can't be foster parents at this age, obviously, or feel like they want to make a difference, but don't know where to start?
3: There are different, they're just sort of different ways to get involved. I mean, w- one thing to be aware of is that you may know kids who are involved in the child welfare system right now, who are teens, a lot of teens who have been through the child welfare system are have just really experienced a lot of trauma in their lives. And many of them even decide to emancipate themselves early because they are so tired of the way they've been treated by the system. And, um, you know, we actually, a lot of states now, are happy to provide funding uh, for kids to, who will remain in foster care even up till the age of 23. But kids will sort of check themselves out at 15 or 16 because they hate it so much. So being aware if there are those people in your life, kind of reaching out to them and and you know making them feel as normal as possible and as much a part of the community as possible, I think is really important. I think there are other ways to kind of get involved. If you are involved in a religious institution of one sort or another, there are different kinds of organizations that work through those. There's a a group called Care Portal, uh, which operates in most states in the country now. And it's a kind of interesting technology that allows a caseworker who says like, I need a car seat at the last minute, or I need a stroller at the last minute, or I need some baby clothes for a six month old. And they will kind of, if your religious institution or your community has signed up for them, you'll get an alert and, you know, you can help to provide those things or find those things and bring them to that family. And then they also offer a kind of like more, you know, intensive things, like not just goods, but also, you know, services, like who can help families like this, these foster parents may be taking in like three kids. Kids and they need somebody to put together beds or furniture for them? Like, could you volunteer to do that? So I think there are a lot of interesting volunteer opportunities that happen with kids who are in foster care and just kind of trying to make yourself aware, because like I said, I mean, it is a relatively small portion of our population who are, who are kids in foster care, but also just trying to be aware of, of kids who are at risk. Like in New York, we live in very close quarters and, you know, I I think that people are very worried necessarily sometimes, especially during COVID, about reaching out to other families, or, you know, frankly, even reporting something when they know something is going wrong. I mean, I, I know it can put people in a very uncomfortable position, but the the difficulty of just ignoring cries for help, I mean, you, you see neighbors who have called because they see bruises on kids, they see bad things happening to kids, and the neighbors who don't, like, they really regret it. I mean, it's it's you you don't want to be in a position where you're trying to ignore that just because you want to mind your own business. Um, so you know, if you see something, say something has become like a kind of ridiculous phrase at this point. But especially with young kids, like they don't have a way of speaking up for themselves, and because again, so many of them have not been in school for so long, and you know, have missed regular doctor's appointments and all these things, like. You as their neighbor might be the only person seeing them on a regular basis. So just trying to be aware of these situations is really important.
0: that's all for today
2: with Next Generation Politics. I'm editor Vanessa Chen signing off. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org podcast for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded.